Welcome to The Lorraine Murphy Show. If you're anything like me, you want a successful, abundant business, epic energy, a growth mindset, vibrant health, and beautiful relationships. And this podcast sets out to help us achieve all of that together. I've been in the entrepreneurship arena for almost a decade now and have mentored hundreds of other business owners. So I know what goes on behind the scenes and what it takes to succeed. This podcast shares the tips, tricks, learnings, and lessons I lean on in order to blend the different facets of my life as an entrepreneur, author, wife, and mama to two gorgeous little humans. Let's jump in to today's episode. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Lorraine Murphy Show. I am so excited to bring you this week's guest. She is, despite the challenges that she has experienced in her life and career, one of the most engaging and uplifting people I've ever gotten to speak to. And I am so grateful to her for sharing her story with you and I on the show. Flora Marks once thought she was Wonder Woman. Working at the top levels within multinational advertising agencies, she was a self-confessed, overachieving workaholic who thrived on stress and challenge until she got very sick, kicking off a decade of both health and financial challenges. That decade culminated in her starting two businesses to inspire others to take care of their well-being. The Wellbeing Store to offer mindful gifting and Well You, a corporate well-being consultancy. In our conversation, Flora and I discuss her high-octane life in Adworld and how she was addicted to work, the series of health challenges she experienced and how she navigated them, the intense financial hardship that followed going from an affluent lifestyle to depending on charity to buy fuel to get to work, the biggest lessons and insights she's had from those challenges, the greatest issues holding women, especially female entrepreneurs, back from being as well as they could be, and finally, what changes she has made in recent years to support her well-being. I am so thrilled to bring you this week's episode. So let's get into my conversation with Floor Marks. Hello, welcome to the show, Floor. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Oh, so nice to be here. I feel like I'm getting a little hit of Byron just down the Wi-Fi from talking to That's you today. Right. So good. Byron. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm really keen to talk to you today because as I was just mentioning to you before we started recording, I hosted the first Bold Darling Retreat in Noosa in October. And one of my beautiful guests, Claire, who's also a longtime friend and colleague of mine, started talking about you over lunch one day and we were all sitting around the table just agog at your story and I said to Claire straight away like you need to introduce me to her because I want to interview her for the show so here we are a few months later so I'm really really excited to be having this conversation with you so further the purposes of everyone kind of getting to know you because of course we'll be talking a lot about your story as part of this conversation can you give us a bit of a I guess a background maybe up until the point that you were in corporate sure so I've been in the, I was in the communications industry for about 20 years. So running advertising agencies, I loved solving brand challenges like the Qantas rebrand, like Vodafone fail when I came to Australia. I ran Amex regionally. And in essence, my, I guess, way of being in corporate life was I loved a challenge mm. and I loved pain and suffering. I loved solving really big problems and I was the queen of busy. And, you know, I'm definitely a workaholic, like mm. I was a mum juggling it all. I was the first female in New Zealand to run an agency part-time and with kids. Amazing. Yeah. And so I was trying to like really 
I loved what I did. I actually loved it so much that I worked myself really, really sick. Mm. So can I just, just for everyone's context, Laura, like you ran major global agencies in Australia. Like we're not talking little kind of five people bands. Okay. I mean, what's what size agency are we talking about that you were heading up? Well, when I ran a number of people. It was across nine countries for Ogilvy, so a really big brand mm-hmm. agency. I worked for WPP. I looked after Westfield. I looked after Qantas. looked after Vodafone. I ran the integrated agency for Westfield. So I, I really had big teams, big challenges, big mm-hmm. budgets, mm-hmm. and you know, and we did a lot of amazing creative work in that time. Yeah. And, yeah, I was very, very blessed to work for WPP for 20 years, actually. It's amazing. How long were you in corporate for? Pretty much 20 years, like just a little bit over. I transitioned from client side after a couple of years into agency life. So probably about 20, 23 years. I'm aging Mm. myself now, aren't I, Lorraine? (laughs) So young. I promise I won't do the maths. (laughs) So tell us, so you mentioned there, I just want to give people the context of like how big your roles actually were, because, you know, obviously there's tiny agencies and there's the level of agency that you were working with. So huge amount of pressure, huge amount of responsibility, I would imagine burning the candle at both ends in terms of time zones, waking up in the morning and then going to sleep at night, like really, really, really big hours as well. Plus, of course, having two children. Two countries a week. So when I ran Amex in Singapore, uh, across Asia, it was two countries a week. It was 24-7. I reported into New York. I reported into London. You know, I'd do silly things like fly to London for the day. And wow. I had two kids under the age of five. I had an at-home husband who was kind enough to step up and take that role so I could follow yeah. my dream. And I pretty much worked 24-7. I was very much engaged. And I moved to Australia to run Telstra. And I thought one country, one client, that's going to be a walk in the park. Yeah. <laughs> I got here, they put the business up for pitch. And also I just kept running the moment I arrived in Australia as well when I transitioned here. So, you know, if I couldn't fit 12 meetings in my day, I would think I was not having a very busy day. So I was a high performer. I don't know. I guess I was just, I love busy and mm. loved really taking on big chunky challenges yeah that's huge that was what I got and tell me so obviously you got sick which we'll talk about in a second did you feel well doing that like did you feel like your energy left did you feel well day to day I mean relatively well my body was screaming at me Mm -hmm. and I was choosing to ignore it so I actually was running a marathon in France and Bordeaux through vineyards and it was during that marathon that I realized I might not be just, you know, feeling tired. I might be sick because I got developed a really bad cough. Right. And I never really recovered from that marathon. But I kept pushing through for about another six months before mm-hmm. I even went to a hospital. And at that point, I had the worst case of shingles that I'd ever seen, as well as I was coughing blood every second sentence in my mouth. And I was just too busy to stop and slow down. I felt like I had this weird conversation going on in my head that I thought I was just, I don't know, I don't think it was my ego. I think it was just more the pressure, I didn't want to let anyone down. And so it took my PA taking me up to emergency in North Shore Hospital and making me sit there and get an X-ray before I did anything about it. And that's mm. when I was in a lot of trouble. So I left it too long. I just kept pushing through. So what happened? What did they find in that X-ray then? So I was diagnosed with a rare autoimmune disease. At first they thought I had tuberculosis or lymphoma, but I actually ended up having a rare disease called sarcoidosis, which they then moved into treating me 
quite aggressively because it had moved to my eye. So it's an inflammatory disease, my lungs. So I had open chest surgery. They took out a whole bunch of lymph nodes that were blocking my airway. And then they moved and moved to my eye and I was going to lose my sight. So they went quite aggressive and moved through about 17 rounds of chemo to kind of just try and settle the disease down. It wasn't. So it's actually a cancer? Is it a type of cancer? No, it's an autoimmune disease, but it's treated treated as if it was, you know, like a cancer, I guess. Like tumors almost. Yeah. And so I just wanted to kill everything in my body to settle it down before it got to a point where I couldn't get back from it. And so, yeah, so I really had to stop work. (laughs) like that's huge no as in I can just imagine the amount of responsibility you had and I can almost see you sitting in the hospital being given this diagnosis and going you know who's keeping the whole show running when you're not there I mean that's huge to go from working as you said 24 7 for years on end to not working at all I mean how did you deal with that mindset wise well I went from sort of having a big team to having the postman my dog and you know the local cafe people. So I was lonely. Like really, it was a real shock to withdraw from people. I also was scared. So I had to kind of take a moment to calibrate and it took me a while to sort of really accept what was happening. And also the other thing was our family business model was for me to be the main income earner. Yes, yes, of course. My husband had been the at-home dad and had transitioned to Australia similarly. And so money became, you know, my kids in private schools, of course, and it became pretty real pretty quick. We had two houses, you know, we were living the best life we possibly could when I got sick, but we were highly geared. And so we weren't prepared for that either. And I had to stop work for two years. So, and we didn't know it was going to be two years at the time. We thought I might not live to the, I was, I was 40 when I got sick. And they said, look, if you make the year, you'll be lucky. And so we were kind of recalibrating our whole life. Do we keep our kids in private school because there's continuity and they've got friends and we just moved to a new country. We didn't really know anyone or, you know, and also, you know, we had to sell our houses immediately right on the recession, of course, in New Zealand so that we had money to survive. And so we, you know, we sold our houses at a loss and pretty much very quickly became financially very poor. And so we actually ended up having to leave our stuff on the street and live in strangers' houses for a period there where we couldn't afford to keep a roof over our head. Oh my God, Flora. So what do you mean by living in strangers' houses when you say that? So we couldn't afford the rent. And so luckily with the beautiful private school community, some of the parents stepped up and said, we're going overseas. Do you want to live at our house? and get yourself back together. The company I worked for did a fundraiser to help us get some more money. And so we kind of literally had to live in, we hadn't met these parents through the school because I'd been sick for a while. And so, you know, they kindly gave us their houses. Oh, Flora, what a humbling experience on every level, you know, health, financially, socially, work-wise. And I know this is probably the least of your worries, but what did the business that you're running at the time do then? Did they just have someone step up in your place? Yeah, they replaced, well, we kind of held the role open, but then I said, look, I need to get better. I don't think I'll be back for a while. So they put someone into the role. They were really amazing to me. They really supported my journey and did everything they could to help. And that's hence why I went back there when I got better again. But Holy God. Okay. This is such a huge story. Claire didn't even tell me how big the story was. (gasps) Oh, Roland Chimnusa. You're living in strangers' houses, dealing with kind of some big questions around your own mortality at 40. And what age were the kids at this point? Five and seven. Right. Yeah. So young. And yeah, and trying to be a mum 
to them Mm -hmm. as best I could. And that was probably one of the blessings actually at that point was that I really hadn't got to, I've been so busy, I hadn't really engaged in my children's schools, but here I was suddenly able to walk to the school, Mm. know the children's, you know, friends. And so, because it wasn't working, so I could be in their lives. So in lots of ways, you know, some days I didn't make it out of bed and we'd just have stories in bed. And I had some of my former team come in and cook dinners and help. And there was a blue esky bin out the front of my house for a year that all the parents from the schools basically every night that got filled with a dinner or a magazine or frozen sandwiches. So we didn't have to worry as I fought for my life. So, yeah, you're going to make me cry if you cry. (laughs) Oh, my God, this is so incredibly touching, Fleur. My gosh. So, yeah, so it was – and we didn't know this community that well and everyone just stepped up and surrounded us and helped us get through because for my husband it was a lot to to watch, to be the carer and to be the carer of two little ones. And we just didn't know where we were going to go, what was going to happen. And by the time I got to 17 rounds of chemo, I was pretty done. You know, I was pretty exhausting emotionally and mentally. But one of the things that I guess I made a really conscious choice back when the diagnosis came in was I really didn't want to become the patient. Mm. And so I made a real choice to be graceful throughout the whole journey and to also be me and so like I'd wear sequins to chemo I'd <laughs> up, you know I'd make a joke about red lipstick being my you know recovery kind of so no one could see how bad I was but yeah I just kind of chose to not become the patient and whilst I was a sick mum I wanted to be the there for my kitties while I could and try and help instill a lot of things that mattered so we did you know a girlfriend helped me do like hope albums for the kids just in case and things like that so if I wasn't there they knew my hopes and wishes so it was kind of a real tough time but also in lots of ways it was you know looking back on it because this was now 12 years ago Mm -hmm. you know I think it was my mental spirit my strength and spirit that kept me going because there were days when my body just wanted to give up Mm. but my sheer determinedness to be there for my babies and to live was what kept me going I think gosh wow amazing so what happened then so the chemo obviously worked so after 17 rounds it settled down I went back to corporate life because I thought why not take on the Qantas and Vodafone brand challenges so I went back to work part-time things recovered so you're back in that senior role again like you're leading the, the whole business back in the senior role yeah but we were still poor so I remember even ringing like I was in my fancy suits and I still remember ringing Vinny's and going, hey, I haven't got enough for petrol to get to work today. Hey, could you give me a voucher? And I'd show up in a corporate boardroom and no one would know, right? So on the outside, I looked fine. On the inside, I felt like my life was a disaster because we lost everything. But I actually, in losing everything, I realized that, you know, unless you have your health, you have nothing. It didn't really, it became no longer really that relevant material stuff and so I got back into the rhythm I recovered took on a bigger job of course because that's what you do and I was running Westfield and set up their integrated agency and six weeks into that role I had a review and I was told that the disease had spread to my brain and I thought I was better so you felt day-to-day you felt good Yes, I'd made, yeah. put all these well-being practices in. Yes. I'd sort of, you know, detoxes. I spent a lot of time in nature. I practiced meditation. I'd really, you know, took care of my body. I mm. ate clean, all that good stuff. I fueled my body with good, healthy food. 
And so when I got my next diagnosis that it had spread to my brain, that was when they said, look, you've failed all treatment. Get ready. Prepare yourself. You're going to either stroke out and die. And so you need to get organized. And you would have a stroke is what they meant because it was on your brain? Yeah. 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 Because there's granulomas. I can point to where they are in my brain right now. I can feel them. They're there, there, and there. And then there's one You can feel them? What do you mean you can feel them? Yeah, they're just like little, like, nodule pain things I don't know how to describe it right, like, okay oh, yeah pain they come and go in pain and so that's when I had to go through another six rounds of chemo the next day so that that was pretty brutal mm-hmm. we had we decided to move to Palm Beach at that point because if I was going to go through chemo my children were a bit older but they specifically asked not to see me go through that again so I moved up to Palm Beach to work through treatment for six months and they came up in the weekends when I wasn't going through treatment and so we just sort of did that but that was when I really had to accept my diagnosis that I actually was sick actually I think that was probably the time I really truly went okay I need to accept I'm not going to get better and I need to if I'm going to have the life I truly want I need to now create that for myself and so that's when I spent five months really stepping back again from that I didn't go back to that job Mm -hmm. I went back a little bit consultancy but not really and had to can I ask was your husband working at this point then he was working then yeah he was back working so that was good and we were a bit more prepared and organized yes for what was ahead I knew what to expect and so I went through another six rounds and then you know you still got to survive right so you know I did a bit of work but I actually ended up renegotiating my role to go back into the corporate company I'd been in to actually run well-being and training and development for the 70 agencies across the group so that we could actually authentically take care of our leaders and help them Mm -hmm. not end up like me sick from working so hard and yes and you know it comes from the top doesn't it those kind of behaviors if someone coming into the agency at 22 sees the CEO operating like you were operating will that be you you essentially and, and this is a good I think insight for all of us who are leading teams we are the pace setters for our, our whole team like we are going to set that pace so if you're going at the speed that you're going for so long it almost becomes a cultural thing that doesn't it that that's just normal to go at that pace and then yeah all the associated issues then as you've experienced it's huge what we did was we trained the leaders to model the behaviors that we mm. wanted to see in our own people. Yes, but love. What I realized was how much silent suffering actually was happening with our senior leaders, that they were just like me. And so yeah. when I told my story and then when we gave them the tools, so Claire helped do a lot of that program as well, it actually gave them permission to take care of themselves so they could be better leaders, so they could mm. sustain the pace as well. So that was pretty, I was very lucky with the CEO of the company who I'd worked for 13 years at this point. He really allowed me to, he didn't quite believe it at the time, but then he allowed me because he trusted me to do it. And then he got it and went, oh, wow, we need to take care of our people in this way. This is amazing. This is well before COVID and yeah. anything around well-being was kind of a term. So that was a really amazing experience to give back and help all these I think about 800 leaders and then I guess about 3,000 people within the company to learn how to take care of themselves and show up in a really high performance culture sustainably yes and not leaving their true selves at their door and actually being who they were but also giving them permission to take care of themselves so they could Mm. work well and that was that part of that journey (laughs) so was that you starting that consultant so you were still in the role yes you haven't gone out on your own yet yeah. And it was back in, I think it was now four years ago, I went for another review. And that was when 
after having fought for eight years to stay alive, I got diagnosed with breast cancer as well. So that was right the week before Christmas. And is that related to your condition, Flora? Like, is that like a comorbidity almost? It has been connected. They couldn't say whether it's because of the chemo or whether it's because of my disease, but either way, breast cancer. So I had to Mm -hmm. have, luckily it was stage one, it was early because I was already under a lot of good close checks, but I found myself facing surgery the week of Christmas, letting down my kids again, another horrible Christmas, their mum's sick. And then, you know, radiation, I didn't have to have chemotherapy because it wasn't chemo receptive, but I had five weeks of daily radiation. So I had to step out again. And it was at this point that I kind of really thought, is this a sustainable pathway for me to be showing up in a corporate life where my health is now significantly failing me? And also, I guess it was at this point where I guess I got my idea for my other business where I got sent, a lot of people don't know what to say or do when you're Mm. sick. And when, you know, everyone who knew my journey and knew my story and knew my previous eight years and, you know, we'd it had kind of normalized for a lot of people my health. And then when I got breast cancer, it was either crickets in terms of silence. People just didn't call me for weeks or months that were close to me. And or I got my house filled with flowers. So I could have set up a florist. And I'm my name's Liz, I have nothing against flowers. But I actually realized that people don't know what to say or do when someone's going through stuff like this and how to be there meaningfully and purposefully for someone. Because for me, this was where my mental health really took its took its toll. It was a blow. It was a real blow. And at the time when I just went through the treatment, I let, you had to hold your breath, so you lift your lungs the other way. And I actually ended up holding my breath for that entire three months in my soul because I think I was so stunned that I had breast cancer as well. I was like, what? You know, why me? You know, like, what the hell? And I could use other words, but I won't. Yeah. And so that's when I really actually lost my hope. And I had to go back to work quite quickly still, but in that, because we didn't have a lot to fall back on. And so it was in that moment that I lay in bed while I was recovering and I came up with the idea for the wellbeing store, which is really around giving gifts for moments, life moments that are really tough when you don't know what to do or say and something that's a bit more purposeful and a bit more meaningful and a bit more heartfelt. Mm. And so that's when I lay there and came up with that idea because it took me away from my reality of what was going on and also the fear in my household. My children obviously were relaxed and then they felt fear again because, you know, it's pretty, the the C word is a lot more scarier than an autoimmune Mm -hmm. disease. Ironically, the autoimmune disease is way more scary and way more dangerous than the breast cancer diagnosis. So I'm breast cancer free now, just so you know. Amazing. So how long did it take you to get well then from the breast cancer? Six months. Yeah, probably about six months. Yeah. Mentally, probably about a year. So when was this then? That's only like three years ago or something. Yeah, I had my fourth year review uh, at Christmas time. So yeah, four years ago. 2018. Holy crap. Okay. Yeah. So I set up, well, the consultancy. I decided to leave corporate life about when I came back from my breast cancer treatment and returned to work. I carried on for a bit, but in my soul, I kind of had to listen to calling that I needed to really take care of myself and live the life I truly wanted rather than the life you know that was expected I thought was expected of me and so so that's when I made the brave move to step out of corporate life and still have a relationship with the company I'd worked for so long I could keep training them and they were kind enough to give me a bit of security and income do it and they fully supported my decision and got it 
And so that was when I, you know, was inspired to make the big leap. And that was about eight weeks before COVID hit. <laughs> and was that good timing, COVID-wise? Well, probably not. And you know what I mean by that? Like, because I know I've got quite a few mentees and the e-commerce, the mentees that I have with e-commerce businesses just boomed in 2020. Like it just went crazy. So was it good timing to launch a business like yours or no? Good timing from a business perspective, because obviously being in the business of well-being and training, you know, training leaders on how to lead through change and how to take care of themselves and all of that stuff. You know, a lot of people are adjusting to change. I was very lucky to get quite a lot of, you know, regional role, I guess, projects for that. I would have thought so, In terms of my personal financial security fears, not so fun. I kind of panicked because, you know, I'd sort of been living on a corporate salary and the the warm belly of that. And so, you know, not knowing where your next paycheck was coming Mm -hmm. from, et cetera. But also when COVID hit, my doctor, the head of immunology, said get out of town get out of Sydney you will if you get this you will die it was when they didn't really know a lot about the disease and we had finally bought a small tiny weenie pocket apartment in Byron Bay and so I looked at my daughter who was meant to be going overseas at the same time and we both decided that we were going to bolt to Byron and my husband and son stayed in Sydney because he was going to school and my husband's job was in Sydney. And so we moved to Byron and made that kind of radical, bold move. I thought, well, I love this you and your daughter just running away to Byron. It's so romantic. <laughs> so we, we just did it without a lot of forethought, but we just hopped in the car literally and moved. And we didn't know what was ahead, but I knew I wanted to live and I knew I didn't want to get COVID. And yeah. so it felt like Byron was a safe place at that time to be. Yes. Yeah. What age was your daughter then? She had just finished school, so she was right. 18, 19, yeah. Good timing to go with yeah, you. Yeah, absolutely. So you're living the dream in Byron. So tell us about the business. So what is was it? What is it you offer now in the business? And is this, sorry, I'm going to step back. What the well-being store is now, is it what you visioned it to be, lying in your sick bed that day? Yes, and more, I think. So I've still got two hats. I still do the consultancy while you and training and I train, you know, hundreds of leaders a year on how to be authentic and how to take care of themselves and how to find their true north and purpose. And then the other hat, which is kind of my passion, my heart center, mm. well-being store. So I created a bunch of greeting cards yes. that are all around well-being moments and quotes. I've created a range of gift boxes that are all around different life moments. I love the gift boxes. When I had, I don't think you get as many presents for your second baby, but for when Lexi, our first baby was born, yeah, I got so many gift boxes. And I find like a lot of the gift boxes, they're kind of just, some of the stuff is great, but then some of it's just, it's kind of just like filler stuff. Yeah. And, and I just loved when I was looking through your business, like in the boxes that you have, like everything in there is awesome. Like that, And they're so, you can see how much thought went into them and how carefully curated they are. So yeah, congrats. It's beautiful. Thank you. I think that means a lot. And I had a, quite a lot of requests during COVID for loss, actually. And so I didn't have a sorry for your loss gift box, but I had a lot of people ring me and say, would you create something for me? I've just lost my whatever or my someone suicided or it was a terrible time. And they couldn't be there. And so, you know, each day when I get orders, I'm writing heartfelt messages, whether it's for a new baby or whether it's for someone just sending a hug or just letting someone know that they're there for them in a meaningful way. And so it's kind of, yeah, it's amazing. Because you're getting those messages. Like if I order, I write my message and then you personally are handwriting that message. Like it's so intimate in a way, isn't it? 
Very much. And, you know, when people come in store and they want to create something themselves or go online and create something themselves, they can do that too. So it's just, we've got two stores now. We've got one in Bangalore and one in Byron and just seeing people's reaction when they come into the store. And then also just giving people permission to not just give the gifts to others, but to also self-gift as well, you know, treat themselves. And so, yeah, it's amazing. It's slow because it's been COVID and will grow, but it's, Every day, it's just an honor. I guess it's sort of, you know, fulfilling a dream, really. Mm. So, looking back at the experience you've had over the gosh, 12 years that you've had these yeah, long these time challenges, long time, time, my gosh. I mean, your kids have grown up in that time when you think about it. Like, it's, right. I would imagine that would really put timings on it as well when you remember what age the kids were at certain times. What do you see? What do you feel have been your biggest lessons from everything you've been through health wise? I think for me, you're stronger than you actually think. I didn't know I was as strong as I am. And a lot of people say, oh, you're so inspiring, blah, blah, blah. But actually, I'm not. I'm just, I just didn't realize I was, just, you know, everyone's so much stronger than they believe. I think for me, self-love and self-compassion was where I had to start my well-being journey because I really didn't believe that putting myself first, I thought that was selfish. And so my daughter said to me when she was about 14, you have to be selfless to be self, sorry, you have to be selfful to be selfless. Let me get that right. And I didn't really get that. Like she got it. I didn't get it, my little Buddha. And so when I started putting myself first and taking care of me, I didn't realize the gift of that was that I had more to give others. And I had to experience that to believe it. So that was a big one for me. And then learning how to ask for help as an overachiever, high performer, workaholic, perfectionist, pleaser, I had to get really good at asking for help and not feeling guilty about it and also accepting the help when it came. Because the thing I didn't realize is that when you ask for help, people actually want to help. And I didn't really know how to be specific on the help I needed. And so I had to learn how to do that in a way that really helped, but also in a way that I felt it was going to give them also some, you know, yeah, that wasn't just a never-ending asking for help thing. It was a specific task, like for people. And the other thing for me was radical acceptance, learning how to accept that I'm not going to get better and that every day here is is that I can put my feet on the ground is a good day. And that in the darkness, in that tough stuff, you know, when it really got dark for me and when it got really hard and when I wanted to give up and I didn't want to live, that actually in there is, I guess, some of the lessons and the learnings and the meaning and that all of us as human beings in order to know what the good and the bad is we've got to suffer a little and so for me it was really seeing the gold in that dark time and being able to come out from that and be able to help to first of all practice and model it to myself and then help others with that as well I think has been yeah but learning to accept all of it was the first step for me. Mm. I find that selfish thing really interesting because I had a VIP day yesterday with one of my annual mentees and she got herself into a really shit spot last year, very stressed with the business, was taking everything on herself, working really long hours. At one point last year, um, ended up in the emergency department thinking she was having a heart attack and was really, really in in a very not good place last year. And she's been I feel like what probably a lot of what she's doing is probably what you would preach as well and she's really been looking after herself so much better and she said yesterday this year is the year of me and she said immediately quite you know immediately apologized and said I mean you know that sounds so 
self-obsessed that, you know, it's the year of me and I I sound so selfish. And we had quite a long conversation around the fact that it's not selfish to to look after yourself in order to show up for families, teams, partners, friends, colleagues, you know, that's, I feel it's this real challenge that women have. I don't know if you ever heard Oprah talking about, I think she wrote about it in what I know for sure, her book. And she talked about how she did an Oprah show one time and she had someone on talking about self-care, which was in the 80s. It probably sounded so incredibly radical and extreme. And this person, who, this expert that she had speaking on stage was saying, you know, women need to look after themselves. The whole oxygen mask thing that we all hear a lot now. And she said the crowd was booing, like the audience was booing because it was such a taboo topic. And it's almost like we're still trying to unlearn that. So I really love what you said there about just, yeah, maybe looking back, if you had looked after yourself better, it might have felt selfish, but it would have helped so many others, including you. So I I really love that you've shared that. Thank you. Yeah. And it starts with self-love and self-compassion, you know, and going, you know what? Self-worth, that you're worth it, you know, that you're worth being looked after. And looking at it as a longer game, you know, or a longer, like, if I don't do this now, what's my future me going to look like? Yes. My end up, you know, if I don't start taking care of me now, what's future me? And I wished that would be my only regret is not really understanding that those late nights, those work, you know, flying, you know, doing ridiculous, working hard things and not giving myself permission to rest and accept that rest is hard for me, but actually do it. You know, it just would have given me more, I guess, sustained life longer and not ended up working myself sick. So I think it's that looking at what's my future me look like and how can I build for that? And it doesn't need to be big radical things either. It can just be 10 minutes a day. Just do something for you that you love, that brings you joy, that makes you happy. And then for me, the real work sits in self-compassion and being kind to yourself when, you know, you feel, you know, particularly that you've let someone down or you're failing or when you're feeling like, you know, my natural default behavior would be to double down when things got tough. And not, yeah, absolutely. And so actually to surrender and go, you know what, it's okay. You can just take the rest now and then you'll come back to it. And so it's just that compassion for yourself and love for yourself that's going to make. I needed to get that bit right before I could actually do the other stuff sustainably, I think. Otherwise, it's a little bit lip service, you know, in lots of ways for yourself. Yes, yeah. And, yeah, you don't keep it up either. So if you could go back to yourself 12 years ago and say one thing to Flora 12 years ago, what would you say in terms of like what's one practice that you would tell her to start back then? I think I spent five months asking myself this and I have continued to ask myself this every day is if I am to live the life I truly want, what does that look like and am I living it? Am I living the life that I want? And not a life of expectation, not a life of roles, but am I living the life that I want? And checking in on that. And then the other thing I do most days is I put my hand on my heart, which is a self-compassion. I'll just lift up so you can see. I put my hand on my heart and press gently, just in the coaching room as well. And I say to myself, I love you and I'm listening. And I and I close my eyes and do that. And I listen into what does little Fleur, my true self, need and want and what's coming up. And so I check in with her more constantly and I ask her what she needs and I honor that. And so it's a simple morning practice. You can do it in the bathroom, even on the toilet. 
but just I'm here and I'm listening or I love you and I'm listening and it's a softening but it's also if you press gently on your heart it allows your true self to kind of bubble up rather than all the noise and that's just a daily practice to check in because I think you can get caught in the busy and the do. Yeah. And I think particularly as women, we can get very disconnected from our bodies. We get so into our heads. And one of my mentees told me that years ago, she was in corporate, had like quite an extreme case of burnout, went to the GP about something else, like completely not related to what ultimately the conversation they had. And he said, yeah, yeah, that's fine. We'll talk about that in a second. But what's going on with this massive lump on the side of your neck? And she was like, what? She couldn't see it. She couldn't feel it. And she had this huge cyst essentially on the side of her neck, but she was so literally from the neck down, she was essentially numb. So I know one of my beautiful friends, Claire, another Claire, Claire Bead, talks a lot about somatic movement, you know, getting us back into our bodies. So I think that that's such a beautiful practice because it's so simple just to put your hand in your heart and connect back in there. I think it's, yeah, thank you for sharing that. That's magic. Have you heard of the Hoffman process? Oh, yes, I have done that. I just- ah, you know, it's interesting because talking to you, there's yes. so many threads of what you're speaking yes. to around the forgiveness, the compassion, the yes. your true self. Oh, full body goosebumps. I just did it a couple of months I did ago. That when I was in Singapore, when I think I ultimately knew my ass was on fire and I was exhausted and depleted with my life, I flew yeah. in to Byron and did that. Yeah, two people in my process in November flew in from Byron as well. Yeah. How funny. I feel like yeah. I can kind of spot Hoffman people now. Oh, yeah. I'm one of, I'm one of you. <laughs> the language is amazing. Process ever. Yeah. Oh, it's incredible. Life, absolutely life changing. So tell me what's one thing that you would, what's one thing that you would ask listeners to do based on our conversation today, given the huge experience that you've had? And thank you, honestly, from my heart to yours, thank you for sharing so, so vulnerably and openly and rawly. It's really, really incredible. And I think for someone like you to have been through what you've built, you've been through and then to build a business that almost specifically speaks to the experience you've had and the need that you had that wasn't met, like, just absolutely magical. So incredible. What's one thing that you would like listeners to do based on everything you've shared today? I think just take 10 minutes a day for you to be. It's a really hard thing to do. To sit oh my God, it panics me when you say that. Yes. Yeah. And just 10 <laughs> minutes a day, like for the next seven days, just sit and be, even do that exercise or just go, you know, I'm just going to take 10 minutes for me. I'm going to do something I love. I'm just going to do some, not an outcome led thing, just a be thing, doing something that makes you feel good even if it's just sitting in the sun for 10 minutes or having a cup of tea or just Mm. not being having an extra long shower putting fresh sheets on the bed and just lying and enjoying them the evening yeah all those little moments yeah that would be just giving yourself that little space and that little bit of permission to fill your cup Mm. each day and can I actually add Flora I think the 10 minutes is awesome but if someone is having a visceral reaction to sitting still for 10 minutes, doing something nice, even just starting with five minutes and just, oh, fine. Yeah. you know, just feeling that and then working up to 10 minutes. That's what I had to do when I learned to meditate. It was like, just start with five minutes because the 10 minutes was even far one too minute. intimidating. Even one <laughs> minute. You just sat still for one minute and not look at your phone or your screen. Yes. Nice. So I think just getting comfortable with being, not doing. Mm, love that. Thank you. Is there anything else you feel like we've missed? I feel like we've dived quite deep into your story, but is there anything else you feel like we haven't covered or you'd like to add before we finish up? I think probably the only thing for me is that's still a practice. I'm a magnificent work in progress. And one of the things that I'm practicing this year is boundaries, but boundaries practicing my own self boundaries. I'm the person who gives up my own boundaries. So your boundaries with yourself as opposed to my your boundaries, boundaries with, with external people. With other yeah. people like, you know, I call them intrinsic boundaries. 
really setting clear boundaries for what's, you know, how am I going to take care of me? And sometimes those wobble out when I feel the pressure or the workaholism pipes up. The pusher in me, you know, the hustler in me dials up. It's actually having really clear boundaries in life. I think that's something that I am still learning and still mastering is how do I, if I say I'm going to only work six hours today, finishing it at six hours mm-hmm. rather than just I'll just do another half hour or just this or just that. So for me, I'm just really learning to be clear on my boundaries and actually learning how to say no more authentically without guilt. And honoring honoring your promises to yourself, essentially, isn't it? Absolutely, because I'm. Mm. I noticed last year I was the one who was surrendering my boundaries, not other people jumping in. It was me that had to do the work. So I guess that's the only thing. And I'm sure as lots of your audience, you know, similar, and that you have great ambitions, but actually sometimes that's at the cost of you. And so being really, I've been really strict on my boundaries this so far this year around what that looks like. Oh, amazing! This has been. Incredible to talk to you, honestly. Like inspiring, raw, motivating, touching all of the things. I feel like I've been on an emotional, a nice emotional roller coaster with you this morning. So thank you so much for sharing. I really, really appreciate it. And if anyone wants to reach out, can they do that, Lorraine? If someone feels a little bit, you know, something come up for them based on the story, please feel oh, free to sure. reach out to me. I know this yeah, might be a lot too. for a lot of people. You might have tears. You might have felt something connected. Mm. Just know you're not alone. So if you want to yeah. reach out, I'm here always. Beautiful. And I am too, for sure. So yeah, I'll pop all your details in the show notes. Everyone knows where to find you. And I know you're offering us a 20% discount. So I'll pop all those deets in the show notes too. Yes. Thank you, my love. That was incredible. Thank you, Claire, for introducing us as well. Thank you, Claire. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I so hope you gleaned the amount of nuggets that I also gleaned from my conversation with Floor. To find out more about Floor herself, you can follow her on Instagram at Floor J Marks, M-A-R-K-S. You can follow the Wellbeing Store on Instagram at the Wellbeing Store. And you can also visit the website, which is thewellbeingstore.com.au. And Flora has very generously offered listeners to the Lorraine Murphy Show a 20% discount at the Wellbeing Store when they use the code Lorraine for purchases of $50 or more at checkout. And I'll pop that code in the show notes as well. And to find out more about WellU, visit wellu.com.au. And all of those links and handles will be in the show notes as well. Thank you so much again, Flora, for so generously sharing your incredibly powerful story. And thank you to my dear listener for tuning in this week. I will be back with next week's episode next Friday. Chat to you then. Please do remember to subscribe to the podcast so you don't ever have to miss an episode. I am always keen to hear your thoughts, questions and requests for future topics on what I share here on the show. So please do reach out via my website, lorrainemurphy.com.au or connect with me on Instagram at lorrainemurphymentor. I would also love if you could rate and review the podcast as it helps even more brilliant listeners like you find the show. Thank you so much again for listening this week. Thank you.